to a special edition of Tall Poppy. If you've listened to the intro, the very first episode of Tall Poppy, you probably got a bit of a sense of why Tall Poppy. And after listening to it again, I realized there was something missing. And based on a bit of feedback I've had, I can see what's missing from that intro is me, my story. It might help you understand my why a bit more. Look, it it might seem egotistical, but this, I think, will give you some context as to why I created Top Hoppy and what got me here. So this is a snapshot of my journey from being a young activist to a self-reflective entrepreneur. This is my backstory. The blue marble shot, they called it. It was the first complete image of Earth taken from space, and it was 1972, the year I was born. My mum was an airline stewardess with nurses training who travelled a lot and partied a lot, and she landed in Australia and was captivated by a man in a Navy uniform. They got married, and four years later, I was born. In the first two years of my life, they travelled the globe with me in tow for the most part. It was the dawn of the jet age. And if you think of it from an environmental footprint perspective, I probably used up my entire share of jet fuel for air travel by the time I was three. Soon after my brother was born, the relationship broke down and my mum took my brother and I back to Canada where she was from, and that's where I spent my formative years. And it wasn't until I graduated from high school that I returned to Australia for a visit, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. It was actually in high school that I got activated by a slideshow presented at our school by Jeff Gibbs, and he was showing images of David Suzuki's trip to the Amazon. In 1989, when word got out about the world's greatest rainforest being burned for cattle farming to feed McDonald's customers, it made a huge impression on me, and I got involved with a group of students at my school who wanted to make a real difference. And this was one of my first leadership lessons. The person who put the group together, she was quite soft-spoken and sometimes struggled to communicate with the group. So I did my best to support her and to amplify her voice. And I probably didn't do it in the best possible way. I was all of 16. And so our group at school was invited uh, to be part of the Environmental Youth Alliance. This was Jeff Gibbs' group at the time. And they were doing trips to various local rainforests. And so we went to the Carmana Valley for a camping trip. And this was a threatened temperate rainforest on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And I got to see the beauty of a 100-meter-tall ancient Sitka spruce juxtaposed with the destruction of clear-cut logging firsthand. And of course, it had a huge impact on my young mind. And not long after, there was a conference in Vancouver that EYA was putting on to share our experience. And they had ethnobotanist Wade Davis as a speaker. And I remember so clearly his advice. He said, study what you love because jobs today will be different by the time you graduate. And look, that's still relevant today. And at that conference, I met a young Donna Morton, who talked about being committed to studying economics, which was something I could not fathom. But she felt it was important to understand from the perspective of the impact that that economics has on the environment, and I really admired that. And thanks to social media, I've reconnected to Donna, and you will hear the result of her journey through economics in uh, not long from from now. Um, And look, she's an excellent example of a tall poppy, and I'm really looking forward to you being able to hear that interview. So back to my emerging activism and my tree-hugging history. 
After being in EYA, I knew that the Western Canada Wilderness Committee, or WC Squared, was doing a fair bit of work in forest preservation, and I was kind of excited and kind of lucky that they were opening a branch in my area, because I lived at the time in, in the Okanagan, um, in the, the interior of BC, and I managed to get my first job with them, at, um, and it was my first environmental job at age 17. And so I worked there for the summer and learned a lot. And that was back in the days when we had faxes and we would get news about what was happening and through media releases via fax. And so, yeah, I worked there for the summer and after my graduation and, and, um, working at the Okanagan branch of WC Squared, I decided that I was going to go back and visit my family in Australia. And I also had an invitation to accompany Jeff Gibbs of EYA to a conference in Melbourne where David Suzuki had been making contact with local young people in Australia to form the Australian Environmental Youth Alliance. And it was pretty exciting to be part of helping getting it up and running. And that was when I met Dallas Kinnear and she really took us under her wing. And I felt like she was an amazing mentor. She managed to get us some office space at the Australian Conservation Foundation. And at this point, I was running workshops, I was speaking in schools, and really just trying to get the Environmental Youth Alliance of Australia established. And it was a time when it was really important to to be offering hope when this emerging environmental consciousness was accompanied by a fair bit of dismay and despair, and young people were starting to get pretty anxious about the state of the environment that they were going to inherit. I also had my first taste of, of politics in activism. There was a group that decided that they were going to take over EYA. And I had no experience with this or any idea how to manage it. And we pushed for maintaining local control and remaining for youth by youth. But with these meetings being stacked by the infiltrating group, we had no chance. I was furious and devastated. And it was around the same time there was a couple of the founding members who met with David Suzuki, who was back in Australia doing uh, another speaking gig. And he offered some great advice. And sadly, most of our response was, yeah, we tried that. It was heartbreaking. And it took me a while to get over it. And when I went back to Canada, I really just focused on getting started with my tertiary education at Okanagan College back before it was a university. Um, and I, when I transferred to complete my degree at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island, inspired by Wade Davis, I did a degree in anthropology and environmental studies. And I got immersed in a new level of activism. And being connected to like-minded people was really affirming. I had some really good times and felt a real affinity with my activist friends. And we did some cool stuff. Like we collectively wrote and performed a play about genocide of Indigenous people in, in Canada at Under the Volcano, which was an arts and activism festival in North Vancouver. And we got involved with some protests against some really drastic increases to university tuition. And those of us who wanted to take some more radical action formed a small group around anarchist principles. We were looking at student fees from a bigger picture socioeconomic perspective and the role that, in particular that banks were playing, especially in the privatization of student loans. And we decided that that was going to be our target. And we planned and carried out a number of bank occupations. And we just basically went into the banks and kind of shut them down because we were chanting and singing and uh, just having a lot of fun. And of course, we got some real attention from the media and of course, the police. Several of the people in the group were arrested and we were prepared for that. Um, and then I think it was the next day we gathered or maybe it was soon after we gathered um, nearby to get ready to do uh, another bank occupation. 
And a few of us, myself included, got arrested before we had done anything. And it was before we had broken any laws, and it felt like such an abuse of power, and we weren't even near the bank yet. That year, we also went down to San Francisco to a gathering of Food Not Bombs. And this was a group that had become vilified for serving free food to the homeless people on the streets. And this is a movement that had spread across the country and as far north as our community in Canada. There was lots of amazing workshops on things like what would now be called the gift economy, solidarity events with AIDS groups, women's collectives, and skills building for direct action, creating support systems for those getting arrested, as well as those abused by police. We'll get back to that in a moment, but I also attended my first Pride Parade, and there was a, a massive march um, with in support of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was, um, and I believe still is, incarcerated. And there was some serious police brutality there, but it was, it was just a little bit before that that I saw my very first police brutality at a Homes Not Jails demonstration. And I can remember seeing my friend, it's just, it's still so vivid in my mind, police knee in his back, his legs flapping, anguish on his face. It was, it was really traumatic. He was tall and white, and we called it the tall white guy in the front gets arrested first syndrome because that's what made sense to police. They would ask us, who is your leader? And we would say, you know, we didn't have one. And look, that wasn't always true. In 1995, our group was on retreat to learn from what we'd been doing and to reflect on where we were headed. The person who was taking the speaker's list noted that men spoke in the group about 10 times as often as women. And this became an issue that we really wanted to address, but it was interrupted by news of a standoff at Gustafsson Lake in northern BC, where police had intervened in a sacred ritual performed by the local Aboriginal people. And this infuriated us. So we cut short our retreat, and we went back to Victoria, to the legislature, and a couple of us chained ourselves to the fixtures in the office of Ujjal Dosange, who was the Attorney General in BC at the time. And our message to him was that he had no jurisdiction and that he should order the police to leave. Again, we made the news, we got arrested, but nothing changed. We attempted to address the gender divide in our group, only to have one of the male members of the group to show up to that meeting. And sadly, our group kind of disintegrated after that. In 1996, I graduated from university after writing my final paper on the greenwashing by the BC forest industry, and I was particularly inspired to inquire into what it would take for the environmental movement to make a real difference in the face of half-truths and spin via the world's largest PR company to quell public outcry and pave the way for business as usual for the forest industry. Yep, the more I learned, the more cynical I became. It was a pivotal time for me in my activist history, and I began to sense a bit of dissatisfaction and a bit like I was banging my head against a brick wall, and it felt futile at times, and I didn't even really want to question it, but ultimately I started to focus my, my activism in my work. And I was quite blessed to get a job in my field when I finished university. Most of my environmental studies friends got jobs in their other major, because at that time you couldn't do environmental studies as a major on its own. And they, their other majors were usually biology or geography. And many of them, you know, some of them got jobs there, but many of them ended up in hospitality, waiting tables, serving coffee, despite their degrees. Pretty sad. I was the only one of that group that got a job in the environmental space, and I was felt pretty blessed and channeled a lot of my desire to create change into my employment. And I kind of slowly separated myself from grassroots activism. And I guess I became a bit of a career activist in a sense. Yeah, being adversarial just didn't 
seem useful anymore. So I, I did a fair bit of work in that area, and that was great. But then we got to a point where I felt bit, uh, pretty burnt out. I actually burnt out three times before I was 30. And I, it got to a point where I wanted to do something different. So I made a shift from environmental work to social justice work. I started working on conferences, starting with the Out from the Shadows conference, which was a conference for sexually exploited youth, which was designed to bring policymakers face-to-face with young people in or recently out of the sex trade to promote dialogue and to ultimately get some listening happen that would make policy more related to the experience of people affected by the policy. From there, I worked for an AIDS service organization, AIDS Vancouver Island. And this was at a time when the populations affected by HIV were shifting from primarily men who had sex with men to those who used drugs by injection. And it was a really interesting time to be involved. And it gave me an opportunity to explore some of my other realms, such as my queer nature. And I had this really cool community that emerged around that. And we put on some fun events and I created a zine around my identity and gender exploration and Eco-queer was a term that I used to describe myself. And on some level, that's still part of who I am. I can't quite remember the order of the events here, but another person who had a huge impact on me was Catherine Malloy. She was the best boss I ever had. And I learned a lot about leadership from, from her. We worked on a couple of conferences, and I was asked to join her as she set up the Malloy Group. And that was a fantastic experience, though it wasn't long before the Sierra Club came and tapped her on the shoulder, and I ended up working for another local environmental group, City Green, working on sustainable transport. And I remember talking to a colleague, because I was still interested in this concept of what what is it going to take for the environmental movement to really have the impact that I felt that it could. And I asked a colleague who was working for another well-respected environmental organization, I asked him what he thought the environmental movement needed. His answer was therapy. A few years later, I was in a position where my job ended. And, well, environmental advocates rarely got jobs that were funded beyond a year. And, yeah, my cat had died, and I was single, and I was curious about what it would be like to go back to Australia and live and work. And I saw this window of opportunity in my, my circumstances, and I jumped through. I sold all my stuff, my books, my art, even my loft bed that I made myself, with a little help from my friends, and I decided to leave everything I knew and loved and start fresh in a place where only my family knew me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was all part of my pursuit for change. And it was around this time where I really started questioning everything, how I saw the world, my own beliefs, and went on a bit of a personal quest. And just before I left Canada, I watched What the Bleep Do We Know, the documentary film connecting quantum physics with consciousness. And it was a huge part of this personal paradigm shift that I experienced. And it wasn't, it was soon after I returned to Australia to live that I really had this opportunity to reinvent myself. Free from the expectations of my community and the identity that I'd built up over 12 years of living in Victoria, I loved that community and I really felt loved by it. So moving away to the other side of the planet was huge and honestly I didn't realize how much my community had my back until I was gone. And I was grieving for quite some time when I first moved back to Australia I used it as a chance to look inward, and I did a lot of personal development over the next few years. I did courses, I did seminars, I did the curriculum for living, life design, the spiral, creative mastery, I went to Confest, I did courses online, like The Power of Vulnerability, I read tons of books, I watched TED Talks, 
I could go on. And look, I still do a fair bit of that stuff. Ultimately, I learned a lot about myself and my world. I broadened my own horizons. And, you know, I questioned everything, like, why did I hate corporations? Was it business itself, or was it the way capitalism is expressed, particularly in North America, with the Western world being so consumer-driven and materialistic? And I was really present to the negative impact of corporate greed on the environment and on most people in the world, really. And I was disgusted by that whole realm, and I just felt really alone and frustrated and misunderstood. During this time of self-reflection and sadness, a friend gave me a book by Joanna Macy called Coming Back to Life. And I was really blessed to connect with a group of people in Melbourne who were doing that work. It's called The Work That Reconnects. And I attended a retreat that combined meditation and The Work That Reconnects, which really enabled me to find a meaningful place for the pain and despair I felt about what was happening in the world. Soon, I was facilitating the work that reconnects in Melbourne, and I began to stretch myself in new ways, and I was working um, voluntarily with Gaia Vic, a group of people in Melbourne running these workshops to transform despair into empowerment. It was there that I met Dot Green, who was keen to bring something called the Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Symposium to Australia. I was really intrigued, and we worked together to make it happen, and this was another awesome opportunity for leadership through collaboration, ultimately. We worked really well together, and I loved working with her. We did some awesome events together, and we were able to grow the movement in Australia primarily through an organization called Be the Change. The purpose of the symposium is to generate a human presence on Earth that is socially just, spiritually fulfilling, and environmentally sustainable. And this was the first time that I really felt like it was something that could do that. The symposium was amazing. And I loved doing that work for a really long time. And I was looking at, continually questioning myself, but looking at my relationship with this this purpose. And I felt pretty comfortable with my efforts with two out of the three. But when I asked myself if I was spiritually fulfilled, I couldn't honestly say that I was. And this led to a renewed personal inquiry that eventually led to me stepping back from the symposium and ultimately working on myself. At the time, I was employed by a boutique agency that had some funds to do an environmental program for a group of businesses in Essendon, a suburb in the north of Melbourne. And it was my first real introduction to working with business in a positive way. And I had a few jobs along that lines where I started to change my tune about business. And I read Presence and Theory U and became a fan of Otto Sharma and Peter Singe, And in his book called The Necessary Revolution, it inspired me to see changes in business in a different light. And I I start to actually be able to see that, that corporations were responding to activist demands. Well, at least some, and those who were respectful and strategic and hard-hitting. For example, Coke in their manufacturing initially were using 20 liters of water to create a liter of Coke. Then they got it right down to two after an agitator in India raised awareness of the negative impact Coke was having on the water table in his community. When I was, you know, entrenched in my activism, I couldn't see that. I just thought all big corporations were bad. So I could see that there was a shift happening for me, and I could also see there was a long way to go, but it was happening. And it's similar with Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest, and this is also featured in the symposium, about this undercurrent of changemakers across the planet. 
And that instead of feeling isolated, I could see myself as part of this change happening. And this was also around the time that I had an opportunity to go to a 30-day intensive with Joanna Macy and 60 others from around the world at Westwind in Oregon in the U.S. And it was an amazing opportunity to deepen my work that reconnects practice, which felt really aligned with my symposium work. And from that community, I was able to crowdfund the fees and part of my travel to get there. Oh, there was such rich learnings there. There was a lot of unexpected learnings and it was, it was a really incredible time. I really feel like it helped me to mature as a person immersed in nature. I mean, <laughs> it might sound weird, but I remember communing with a slug and the slug told me you can no longer use your youth as an excuse not to teach. And that was a pivotal moment for me. I know it sounds bizarre. But really, I was surrounded by so many amazing people and, and, you know, we, we used practices like poetry. There was lots of Hafiz and Rumi and I remember the words of some of my, it was called Seeds for the Future and I remember some of the other seeds there reciting poetry and there was one quote in particular that really stuck with me from Rumi. Yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise and I'm changing myself. And this began to be a guiding principle for how I live my life, and it still is. Began focusing on who I am, and how I impact my world, how I am a microcosm of the macrocosm. I read Pieces the Way by Deepak Chopra and got super confronted by my own complicity in conflict in the world, and that my ability to change that started not just at home, but inside myself, my own relationship with myself. I realized how awful my thoughts were as my inner dialogue. Not nice at all, and far from peaceful. In my learning to facilitate the symposium, we explored this idea of unconditional positive regard for others, for your audience, ultimately. And in looking at this situation, I realized it was something that I didn't have for myself. And I'm still working on creating unconditional positive regard for myself, and I probably will be for the rest of my life. Another big influence was reading The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. And at that point, it really tied together a lot of the learning from What the Bleep. And I started to understand the impact of your beliefs on your experience of life. And what came out of this time of questioning everything and reinventing myself was a desire to pursue my own path, to work with leaders, to use business as a force for good, to leave a positive legacy, one that reassures today's young people that there will be a future for them. So eight years ago, I created an exit strategy for my job as an environmental consultant. Within a few months, I started working for myself in my own business. And this was a huge step for me. Having been anti-business and then becoming business-oriented was a massive change. I didn't grow up with entrepreneurial concepts or ambitions, and I was lucky that I had that naivety that gets you through the first years. And I felt really drawn to this work and compelled. I felt really called to do it. Yet in those early days, I struggled to say what my work was or identify who my clients were or my value proposition. It completely eluded me. And when I look back on it now, I was beyond naive. And, you know, really what got me through was 
initially that sense of certainty that I started with and some tenacity and the willingness to look at what wasn't working after spending so much time just being positive and success is just around the corner. Sometimes you really just got to look at the reality and quit being so damn positive. And the other thing that got me through was my diligence in trying to learn what I needed to learn. A lot of learning and it's continuing. Probably will be ongoing again for the rest of my life. I also couldn't have done it without my partner, my friends, coaches, mentors. There have been times and are times when going back to a job to make ends meet is just, you know, it's, it's part of that struggle. It's part of the journey. And there was a point last year where I finally got to this level of success that I could recognize. It was actually that I reached the threshold where I had to pay GST. And I was actually excited because it was like, wow, I get to, you know, use the work that I do in my business to collect funds that make roads and hospitals and schools. And it was a point where I could recognize that there was a level of success. And it felt great. And at that point, I could see that I had learned a lot along the way. And I wanted to share my journey to help others on theirs. And that's a whole nother story, perhaps for another day. But the point here is that in many ways, I'm the last person who should be an entrepreneur. I was an anti-corporate activist. And today I work with corporates and individuals around leadership and change. And I love it. And I know I'm good at it, not in spite of my past, but because of my history. My work today is about helping people and groups connect to wisdom, both collective wisdom and on an individual basis. And it's the innate wisdom that exists in all of us, but that we rarely access or operate from. Being led by wisdom is powerful. I've witnessed it in the clients that I work with, in my mentors and teachers, and even in myself at times. And there are times when I refer to myself as the integrated intelligence maven. And I'm still kind of working out what that really means. And my current thinking is that it stems from a belief that we have a really wide variety of ways of knowing. And our society teaches us to emphasize our rational intelligence, our cerebral way of knowing, and rejects most other ways of knowing. I believe that appreciating other ways of knowing, using our heart smarts, our emotional intelligence, our gut smarts, our intuition, and our body smarts, our somatic intelligence, gives us access to wisdom. And those are just a few of the ways that we know. When we utilize a range of different ways of knowing, that's wisdom. There's still a lot to learn, and I'm giving myself space to evolve with this idea. And there's a lot more that can be said about it. And all of what I've shared here. But like I said, this is a snapshot of what brought me to this point. My work is at the intersection of personal and professional development from a leadership perspective. And that's key, understanding yourself, your reactions, learning to respond with wisdom, then react in frustration. And self-awareness is the first skill in my book on human-centered leadership. And it's a lifelong pursuit, and it's one that I am continually working on. So how does this fit with Tall Poppy? I wanted to do a podcast for quite some time, and I I wanted to write a book. And honestly, it was doing the Key Person of Influence program that got me doing both of those. I'm just about to do a rewrite of the manuscript I wrote this time last year, and there'll be more on that, more to come as I look to you for support to crowdfund my book into existence. But the fire in my belly is about the fact that more often than not, leadership is lacking. For the most part, there's a lot of crap leadership in communities, in companies, in countries, heck, in families. 
There are some amazing leaders and some that I have been really inspired by and I can see a new realm of leadership emerging. And everything I've done has led me to this point, to amplify the voice of an emerging leadership, to bring about a human-centered paradigm of leadership. And you are part of that. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your reviews. Yes, Liz, thank you for being my first reviewer. Thank you to Matt Karowski, who gave me the first feedback and encouragement when I finally got Tall Poppy out there. And there are so many people who have been on this journey with me that I am so grateful for, especially my partner who has supported me on this crazy entrepreneurial journey. So if you are listening, if you're still listening at this point, and in the future, when you're listening to my conversations with the guests that I choose to interview, you will have context and you will have a different kind of appreciation for where I've come from and why I do this. <laughs>